0: Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's word. new series today. Uh, If you don't have a copy of the outline, there's some in the back there uh, that I have entitled, Just a Coincidence. Uh, And then the subtitle is A Primer on the Providence of God. And today we just want to kind of get a handle on what it is that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And i put a few definitions in the left-hand column of your notes. Uh, I don't want to get real technical, but I want to be sure that we're all operating sort of on the same page. My plan t- uh, for talking about this is today is to look at, uh, at the basic concept. What do we mean by the providence of God? What is it exactly that we're talking about as best, as best we can define it? And, uh, and then we want to look at one brief illustration of that today. And then beginning in our next session, What I want us to do is take uh, illustrations of it because the Bible is just filled with all kinds of illustrations of people and incidents and things like that where you really see the providence of God in action. And I hope that what this will accomplish over our time together is that it will really uh, cause us to have more confidence in the Lord and really to trust in Him in a greater way, realizing that in the final analysis, while we use terminology like accidents, in the final analysis, they aren't really accidents. They're incidents, and God uses these things in our lives to accomplish certain things. Now, and we're going to and we're going to talk about where our responsibility and all of that fits in as well. Notice from your uh, from your outline there that when we the word primer, and this comes directly from Webster. A primer is a work of elementary religious instruction. And so when we talk about doing a primer on the providence of God, everybody's, all of everybody's questions are not going to be answered over the next few weeks. I think that would be impossible to do that. In fact, I hope what's going to happen is it's going to stir up more questions. Um, I like the, what the, uh, Luke wrote about the Bereans, the Christians in the little city of Berea. Uh, in acts chapter 17 verse 11 where it says uh, of the bereans that these were more noble than those who lived in thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things paul was saying was really so so it it was people who were the berean christians were people who were listening to what paul had to preach and what other people had to preach and teach but then they would check it out according to the Old Testament and say, "Well, is this uh, is this really true or not?" Now, when we come to the to the topic of coincidence, uh, Webster defines coincidence this way, and again, I refer you to your notes: an accidental and remarkable occurrence of events, ideas, etc. Don't you love it finding it, etc. in the dictionary? Uh, At the same time and then the secondary uh, definition according to Webster is that of chance but when you think about it what is chance well chance is basically a mathematical probability let's see. well I don't have a coin in my pocket right now let's assume that I had uh, have a of just a regular coin of the realm and I were to flip that coin what are the chances that it would come up heads 50 50 that's right now does is chance an actual cause if i were to take that coin and uh and set it uh on a chair right here and uh and got everything away from it uh what's the likelihood that that coin is going to just fall off of that chair it's not going to happen chance doesn't make things happen chance is not a cause chance is a is a mathematical probability So when we're talking about coincidence and Webster divining it as coincidence, an accidental and remarkable occurrence of events at the same time, something by chance, we're going to see that that when the Bible talks about these things that we refer to as coincidences, that the Bible takes a somewhat different view from, uh, from all of that. God has a way of taking very often what we call coincidences, and doing some marvelous things in the process as he works his will in our lives uh, together. Now, the word providence is, a, is an important word, and that's what we're going to be talking about. We're looking at the subject of, of providence. And in the old, uh, if you remember from years ago, your, uh, your Latin, it uh, <clears throat> comes from, from the word provideo. Uh, two words, pro meaning, uh, one of the meanings of the word pro is for, Another uh, meaning is the, is the word before, and video looks like what? Video, video and, that, and that's what? It's something that you see, right. So it has the idea when we talk about providence, we're talking about seeing before, but it's really more than just simply seeing before. It's more than just simply knowing that something is going to happen. Notice, uh, again, the, uh, the, the definition. And again, this is from Webster. This is not from a Bible dictionary or anything like that. This is what old Noah Webster said. He said, active foresight or foresight accompanied, accompanied with the procurement of what is necessary for future use. Now, what is procurement? Yeah, when you get something. That's right. So he's saying it's not only Seeing before, seeing ahead, but it's that kind of foresight accompanied with the procurement of with what is necessary for future use. And then the secondary uh, definition is the care or benevolent guidance of God or nature. And what we're talking about is we're talking about God's work of seeing and providing and making provision for us as we go along. Certainly, the scriptures are just filled with this, and this is what we want to be talking about over the next few weeks. Notice uh, in the left-hand column of your notes, I've got uh, several, uh, three verses there in that left-hand column under Roman numeral one, part B. And it's a good illustration, I think, of, of the whole concept of providence, just to kind of get our minds all moving in the same direction. From Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, uh, and this is from the New American Standard Version, it says, and He, and the referent to He is the Son, talking about Christ, and He is the radiance of His, God's glory, and the exact representation of His nature. And what does He do? And upholds all things by the word of His power. Why is it that the world just doesn't just blow apart? It's because god is holding things together you know we we look at things like earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and we say why is this kind of stuff happening when an even greater question is is these things tend to be somewhat infrequent when you think about it in terms of the seasonal things that go on a, a better question is why is it that we see seasons happening the way they do year after year after year after year after year it's the same thing over and over and over it's because the scripture says that God uh, that Christ is upholding all things with his hands notice uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 it says he speaking of Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together remember it was the second person of the Godhead who was the agent for creation God the Father, uh, through the Son, created everything that we see around us, created this, uh, created this universe. And then notice Jesus' remarks in John chapter 5, verse 17, this time it's from the New International Version, where Jesus is speaking and he says, uh, Jesus said to them, my Father is always at his work, his work, to this very day, and I too am working. And we're all familiar with the old passage. I didn't even put it in your, uh, in your notes. The passage, Romans 8, 28. What does that passage say? Yeah, that God causes. God calls. Now, that's, that's the way the verse starts. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, does that verse say that all things are good? No, it doesn't say that at all, but it says God causes all things to work together for good. I was relating just before uh, we started about some surgery that I recently had, and one of the things that I've I've had to deal with, and I don't like to take medicine, but uh, the the pain and the discomfort has been such that uh, I found that medication is very helpful. Well, now, I'm no chemist. In fact, I try to avoid chemistry classes as much as possible in, uh, in lieu of taking psychology and sociology classes. But if you were to break down whatever this stuff is that I'm taking, you would discover that there are some chemicals in there that in, used in certain ways could be, uh, could be toxic. But when they are mixed in exactly the right amount, in exactly the right way with other types of chemicals, then what can happen is that it, taken in the way that the physician prescribes, then <clears throat> what happens is it provides relief from discomfort and pain. Those things that could have brought death can be things that help to make life a little bit sweeter. And that's what Romans 8:28 is all about, is that there are a lot of things that are going on that are awful, yet God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And that fits in with the whole concept of providence. Notice also in your notes there, again in the left-hand column, that uh, the church writings reflect this, and and I just selected two. Uh, Probably the first one is more familiar than the second one, but the old Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, this is the Confession of Faith used... uh, used by uh, by many presbyterians and this is from chapter five paragraph one now the westminster confession of faith was written and uh, uh, published in 16 a.d 1647 notice what it says and think about it in terms of this whole concept of providence god the great creator of all things doth uphold direct dispose and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So the old Westminster divines, when they began to try to put down in writing, in written form, What is it that we really believe about God? What is it that we believe about Christ? What is it that we believe about the gospel? What is it that we believe about mankind? When they came to the concept of providence, they wrote this, that God is really in control of all of these things. And then the second quotation is from the Heidelberg Catechism, which came a little before that. That's from the 16th century in in A.D. 1563. What is a catechism anyway? Anybody know, it's kind of a, a catechism is an oral instruction that takes place in the form of questions and answers. Uh, For example, the old Westminster Catechism, the first first question in the Westminster Catechism is, uh, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And you can't enjoy God without glorifying God. The Heidelberg Catechism came before the Westminster Confession, and the question is, what do you mean by the providence of God? And here's the answer that they wrote, and this is what every kid would quote as he was learning his catechism. Uh, The answer to question 27, the almighty and everywhere present power of God Whereby, as it were, by his hand he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. What, what, what were these? What were the old Heidelberg divines saying? God's in control. And God is working his plan, and no matter what happens, God's plan is being orchestrated, and there's nothing that's going to thwart that plan. Now, what about the scope of providence? When we're we're talking about this, certainly there are some false views of providence, and one of them is uh, is the whole idea of, uh, well, if we could do it this way. Uh, I'm not... Let's, let's uh let's just draw a line here we'll say this is a this is a continuum and on this end is uh is atheism now the atheist believes that God is in control to what extent he doesn't why doesn't he believe god's in control because he doesn't believe in God that's exactly right you know for the atheist uh the uh Things happen on the what might, they might say things happen on the basis of chance, but we've already said that chance is not a cause of anything. Chance is a mathematical probability. You flip, again, you flip the coin, the chances are uh, that it comes up head is 50 50. Uh, also on this end, there there there's sort of a fatalism that uh, that develops, and that is you know well this is the way it is. There's no getting around it. You just give up and. Get on with your life and do the best you can. And again, when we talk about fatalism, we're talking about something that doesn't have anything to do with uh, with God at all. It leaves God out of the equation. Now, on the other end of the uh, equation, or somewhere on the on the other end, is uh, is deism. And uh, deism is a belief in God, but the uh, but the idea, and many of our founding fathers of this nation were, were deists. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Remember, Thomas Jefferson is the one who rewrote the New Testament. And what did he do when he rewrote the New Testament? He took everything that was miraculous out of the New Testament that he rewrote. If you, re- if you read the, the Testament that Jefferson wrote, the, uh, the, new, the Gospels end with the death of Jesus. There is nothing in there about the resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection was something supernatural and that took a miraculous act of God in order to accomplish. And what the deists believe is that, uh, yes, there is a God, but that God is not active in the affairs of men. In other words, it's kind of like uh, you take that, uh, that old Big Ben alarm clock that you take uh, when you're going traveling somewhere and you just wind that thing up till it sounds like the spring is getting ready to break and uh, that's what god did when he created the world he sort of wound it up like a clock and now it's just kind of running down and yes there's a god but god is far far removed and he doesn't really have anything to do with anything it's sort of a it's sort of a practical form of atheism in uh, in many ways in fact one of the fascinating things to me about uh, early American history, particularly around the time of the Revolution, is you find you find writers like uh, Thomas Paine, who were trying to get the uh, uh, the colonialists all stirred up to fight against the British. And one of the some of the things that Thomas Paine would write was, "Will God, who has brought us this far, abandon us in the fight? We need to take up arms, and we need to trust in the God who will guide us and." all this kind of stuff, and the truth is Thomas Paine didn't believe that because Paine was a deist. For for Paine, the, the truth was is that God had just got the whole thing started, and it's all up to us, but what Paine knew was that many of the colonialists were not deists. In fact, what they were was theists, that is, they believed... Uh, they believed in, in God. Not only did they believe that there was a God, but they believed that God was actively involved in their lives. And so what pain did was to, to play to uh, to play to that in order to get folks kind of stirred up. So, but notice what the Bible says. Now, now clearly, when we're talking about uh, what we're looking at when we look in the Bible is we, we are looking at it uh, from the from the standpoint of, uh, of theism, uh, that is, that God is active and actively working. Not God is not distant or removed. Uh, clearly, the Bible teaches that God is not only uh, eternal, but God is uh, is imminent as well. He is uh, He is with us. Notice uh, again Roman numeral two, part B. Uh, God's control is all inclusive and certain, and I put several verses there to illustrate that. And these all illustrate this uh, this theistic viewpoint, which is the, the, the viewpoint of the Bible. Notice the passage from Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap. Now, what's a lot? So that's a, a lot is a bunch. Well, yeah, but what is a lot? Yeah. Okay. Like right. the lot, it was a, it was their way of divining things. It was kind of uh, it was similar to shooting dice. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The uh, I I love the new uh, the paraphrase that uh, that has come out that says uh, God is the one who caught men cast the dice. But it's God who causes the spots to come up, and so it, that's that's kind of the idea. Aren't you amazed at the uh, at the the people, the, especially the the ladies, who come on TV, and they tell you that they've uh, that they can tell you what your future is, and they've got all these special numbers for you, and they've got if you'll if you'll call in for four ninety five a minute, that they'll give you your lucky numbers, and you'll be able to do things like win the lotto. Have you ever wondered why, if they have the lucky numbers, why they didn't win the lotto and then they wouldn't be on TV trying to get 4.95 a minute out of us? But the truth is, is that men cast dice, but God's the one who causes the spots to come up. He's that much in control. Proverbs 16.9 from the New American Standard. The mind of man plans his way, and God intent- God has made us rational creatures. He intends for us to use our minds. We plan our way, but, what, but the Lord directs His steps. One of the things that I pray real frequently is I say, Lord, I'm, I'm not sure uh, you know, about which way to go in this issue. It just When I look at Scripture, it seems to indicate this. I'm going to begin to move in this direction. Lord, if I'm making a mistake, please, please stop me. What are we doing? We're trusting in the providence of God that He is going to so work in our lives that he will direct us and bring us where he intends for us to be. Look at the passage from Proverbs 21.1, and there are many people who during our last political uh, administration really relied on this verse. It says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it wherever he wishes. In other words, the leaders of our country can plan to do all kinds of things but what we know is what's happening in the background. God's at work. And God is leading. God is guiding. God is, and as we shall see, God will even use the evil of other people in order to bring about his own purposes. And we begin to see that in Job, uh, in these two uh, passages from Job, uh, Job 1 verse 12 and then Job 2 verse 6. Remember that uh, Job was an upright man. God didn't have anything bad to say about Job. Job was minding his business. He had a wife. He had a bunch of kids. He had a great uh, business going for him there in livestock. Just a, a great situation. And all of a sudden, the, uh, the old devil appears before the Lord one day and says, uh, and, and the Lord brags on Job and said, Hey, have you seen my servant Job down there? He's an upright man. He hates evil. And old Satan said, well, I guess so. Look here, you've got him all hedged up round about. I tell you what, you let me put my hand on him and he will cuss you to your face. And notice what the Lord says in Job 1.12. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything Job has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger we say, well, I don't understand why God did what he did. Well, none of us fully understand why God did what he did. Now, when you read the book of Job, you understand why. But the truth is that even here with old Satan, how far could Satan go in touching the life of Job? Only as far as God would let him go. He said, okay, you can touch his stuff, but you can't lay a finger on the man. And remember, all of a sudden, man, the whirlwinds came down. The next thing you know, his children were dead. All kind of stuff was going. To, livestock run off, been killed. Tornadoes everywhere. And uh, and 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 Mrs. Job was not much of a comfort to him. And uh, and uh, and oh, the old devil appears before the Lord again, and the Lord says, "See, I told you." He said, "Yeah, but you let me touch his skin, and he'll cuss you to your face." And so the Lord, notice what the Lord says. Chapter 2, verse 6, The Lord has said to Satan, Very well, very well then. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. You can touch his body, but what is it that you can't do? You can't kill him. You cannot kill him. You cannot kill him. Remember, one of the things that should encourage us is Psalm 139, verse 16. It says all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be every day God knows now I'm glad I don't know the day of my departure from this world that's something I'm not interested in knowing and people say, well I'd like to know because I might want to live differently well the fact is that none of us do know and so we need to live every day like this may be our last day and and we need to plan for all eternity and we need to live in the moment to the fullest that we can according to the glory of God. But here, you find, old, uh, you find the old devil. A man, you know, Job wound up with boils all over him, and Mrs. Job wasn't much help. What was she doing? She said, why don't you just cuss God and die? I mean, wasn't that a supportive wife? And so, uh, and Job said, well, wait a minute. Said, should we receive good and not receive evil from the Lord? You know, the Lord gave, the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and the scriptures say, and in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, we realize that Job's patience started running out, especially after his pals showed up to try to encourage him. God deliver us from encouragers like, uh, like Job had. But Job, at the end of the story, Job is much better off than he was at the very beginning. But the, the point I'm making here is even in this situation, everything, even the spirit world, is under God's control. And even the evil one cannot go beyond what God will allow him to go. And that's, again, that's what this confession of faith, that's what the old Heidelberg Catechism, that's what the Bible says to us over and over again. Now notice that providence, about providence and human disobedience, well, you know, God's control is not limited in any way by man's free agency. And what I mean by free agency is that we are able to make choices. Uh we choose to do certain things. Uh you know, I I chose to put on a green shirt today. Uh you may have chosen to wear tennis shoes instead of uh instead of something else. We make choices and but even our choices fit into the plan of God. I, I, just to uh, give you a couple of uh, illustrations, uh, the, the truth is is that our choices in the final analysis are limited in some way or the other. And God has a way of using even our lousy choices and even the evil that we do to accomplish his, uh, his work. One of the clearest examples from the Old Testament is that of the of a kid named Joseph, a 17-year-old teenager who was just rubbed everybody including his dad the wrong way. He was a brat, he was a smart alecky, smart mouth teenager and it got him in trouble because and he was dad's favorite. And one day when dad sent him out to the field to check on things out there with his brothers, he was about he found himself about 50 or 60 miles away from, from where dad was and his ten brothers saw him uh, coming up in uh, their direction, and they said, let's just take care of that guy right now. And remember what they did was they, were, they had planned to kill him, but instead they put him in a pit, and all of a sudden, wasn't it coincidental, that while, while he was in that pit, that these Midianite merchants came. Uh, there, was a, there was a path, a, 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 a trade route, that ran right by Dothan, where they were, came right by there they sold Joseph into slavery and Joseph went down to Egypt. Now, were those now we know that in God's plan, God's plan ultimately was to save Egypt from a tremendous famine that was coming. And the reason he was going to save Egypt from that famine was because God was going to bring Jacob's entire family down to Egypt where they could be taken care of in Egypt and they would grow from a family of about 70 or 75 people to 400 years later, they would be in excess of two and a half to three million people. But, so, now, did God tell those ten brothers, said said, I want you all to go out and I want you all to act real ugly toward Joseph. No, God didn't say that. In fact, just the opposite happened. What happened was the brothers said, we just hate him. We can't stand him. And the hatred, the animosity, the ill will that they felt toward their brother and then the actions that they took based on that ill will, did that thwart the plan of God? No. God used that in his plan to accomplish his will. Same thing with the, uh, the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. You remember Jonah was a patriot. He had been a very successful prophet. But during that time there in northern Israel one of their greatest uh, threats to their to their safety as a nation uh, and to their uh, and to their national interest was a great empire called Assyria that was rising up and I mean Jonah just wanted God to nuke the the Assyrians Nineveh was the capital of that remember what happened uh Uh, Jonah's just going about his business one day. All of a sudden, we don't know how, whether it was audibly or within, but anyway, God spoke to Jonah and said, I want you to go up to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to the Ninevites. Uh, Did Jonah go right away? No, he didn't go to Nineveh. He headed in the opposite direction. Instead of going 500 miles northeast to Nineveh, he he started heading uh, 2,500 miles due west to uh, Tarshish, which would be the other side of Spain, where Portugal is today. But what did God do? Well, he got out there in the Mediterranean Ocean. You know, in fact, you think about the story. He's he, uh, Jonah was from a mountainous region. It says he went down to Joppa. Joppa was a seaport. He went down to the seashore. He went down to the ship. He ultimately went down into the hold of the ship, but he had one more step to go down, and where was that? to the bottom of the Mediterranean because even though he was running away and he said I am not going to do this I want you to nuke them I don't want you to save these people what did God do God was working in all of that and in the process there were some Phoenician sailors Gentiles whom God saved on that boat they tossed Jonah overboard and what happened of all things, there was a great fish there. Just waiting on you. not that coincidence? Just the fish there at just exactly the same time that Jonah went off into the drink. No, that's not a coincidence. That's the work of the providence of God. That's God guiding and upholding all things and making all things work together for good. You ask Jonah, is this a good thing? I wouldn't call being in fish belly a real good thing right now. But ultimately, where did Jonah wind up? He wound up back on the shoreline and when it says the whale vomited him up on the shoreline. And so here comes Jonah, staggers out, you know, a whale vomit all over him. And I'm sure his first question was, can any of you people tell me which direction Nineveh is? And he went and he preached and God saved the Ninevites from the king on down. Do You think Jonah was happy? Not at all. Last picture we have of Jonah is he's sitting on outside of the city on a hill. He could have been in the city doing follow-up work, explaining things to them about how God works. But instead, he's sitting out on a hill, and he's thinking, maybe, maybe God will nuke him after all. Just, just waiting. But what did God do? God accomplished his purposes. And he even used the disobedience, not only of the ten brothers of Joseph, who were not saved, apparently, at that time, but he also used the disobedience of a prophet named Jonah who was a saved man. <clears throat> God, can, God always accomplishes what he intends to do. I want you to notice there are two passages right down at the bottom of your notes there on that first page. And it has to do with the evil that men did, uh, the evil that Herod and Pontius Pilate did regarding Jesus. Notice what Luke wrote in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. He's preaching there on the day of Pentecost, and he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. He said, look, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Most of you guys were around here. Notice what he says. This man, what man? Jesus of Nazareth, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. See, that was all in God's plan. God used even the evil of these people, the, the, the Romans, Pontius Pilate, the, uh, the, the king Herod, to accomplish his will. Notice the passage from Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Again, it's Peter preaching, and he says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. See, the cross was not an accident. The cross was planned. In fact, if you want to jot down a couple of verse references, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, said that Christ was foreknown from the foundation of the world. You know, when you read the book of Genesis, and you get to chapter 3, and all of a sudden the fall occurs, where the man and the woman disobey, you don't get this picture of God conferring uh, among the persons of the Trinity with all of them wringing their hands, saying, oh my, oh my, what are we going to do now? I never knew this was going to happen. No, in fact, the Bible, that, that verse I was just talking about from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, says that Christ was foreknown. He was slain from the foundation of the world. That was in the plan of God before... The man and the woman sinned in the garden. God knew exactly what He was going to do, and He knew exactly when the second person of the Godhead was going to take on human flesh and come and live among us and die for the sins of His people. And in uh, another another passage that's worth uh, thinking about is Revelation chapter thirteen verse eight, and it talks about the people who were saved. And the passage says, "Those who were whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life." From the foundation of the world. There's an old hymn we used to sing in church years and years and years ago. I haven't sung it in years. But the gist, uh, and I don't even remember who wrote it, but the gist of the hymn was this. There's a new name written down in glory. Anybody ever remember singing that? We, we used to sing that in church. We'd, man, I, there was times I think we sang that every time we got together. There's a new name written down in glory. Nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is is that Revelation 13.8 says the names of all of those whom God was going to bring to himself were written in the Lamb's book before the foundation of the world. God is working to bring his uh, his plan to fruition. Now I want us to look at one really short illustration that's on the back side of your notes and uh, we've got about seven minutes left. This is from 1 Kings chapter 22. And it's related to King Ahab. Now, this is not Ahab the Arab. That, uh, who was that singer back in the 60s or 70s? Uh, I, it escapes me right now. Ray, Ray, Ray Stevens? Is that right? Okay. Ray Stevens sang about Ahab the Arab. That's not who this is. This is Ahab the Israelite. But he was an Israelite king. The time is the 9th century B.C. And, uh, in fact, you'll remember... Uh, we'll just uh, let's draw our little map. Here's the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, and here's the uh, shoreline. This would be Egypt. This would be the Mediterranean out here. Israel was this uh, at this time. Remember that the nation had been divided into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom called Judah, comprised of two kingdoms, Judah and Benjamin. The other ten tribes comprised the nation of Israel, and above them were the Syrians, Syria. And back in those days, it was known by the archaic name Aram, A-R-A-M. You read about the Arameans uh, in the Bible. The Arameans are the Syrians. And what happened was that the, the, the Syrians were a real threat to Israel. In fact, there was a little, uh, there's a little city over here, In Gilead east of the Jordan called Ramoth Gilead, Ramoth of Gilead. And it was a strategic place because what happened is they realized that if Syrians took this area right here they would be able to establish a base camp from which they could launch attacks and essentially split Israel half in two and divide and conquer the nation. And so what happened was that the King Ahab over Israel sought to enlist the help of King Jehoshaphat of Judah. And I want you to notice what happens. Uh, now, Jehoshaphat was a, Ahab was an ungodly man. Jehoshaphat was a very godly king. And Jehoshaphat said, well, look, Ahab, before I get involved in this enterprise with you against the Syrians, said, what I need to know is I need to know, is it the will of God? Well, uh, Ahab brought in his 400 prophets of Baal, and man, they, they put on their buffalo horns and all kind of stuff and started running around and, and, and essentially quoting the Nike uh, commercial, you can do it, you can do it, just do it, just do it. And uh, Jehoshaphat said, wait a minute, I don't trust any of these guys. I, I'm looking for another, is there a prophet of the Lord down here? And he said, well, there's a guy named Micaiah but he doesn't ever say anything good about me. He said, well, look, let's bring Micaiah in. And so Micaiah prophesied, comes in, and he says, yes, there's going to be victory, but in the process, Ahab is going to be killed. King Ahab's going to die in in the process of gaining the victory. And Ahab's response was, look, I told you, this guy's never got any good stuff to say about me. So Jehoshaphat agrees with Ahab to go and to meet the Syrians over here near Ramoth Gilead to, de- to seek to defeat them so that they won't be a threat to the nation. And that's kind of the background of the story. 1 Kings 22, verse 29. So the king of Israel, Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I'll enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. Now, why would he do that? What? Well, He didn't want to look like the king. So, you know, I'm just going to dress up like the average guy out here, and that way I won't be as much of a target. Uh, So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now, the king of Aram, or Syria, had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, don't fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. And when the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, surely this is the king of Israel. Why? Why? He's the only one dressed like a king out there. So they turned to attack him, but when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commander saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. Well, so far, Jehoshaphat's doing all right. Now, here's here's the verse, verse 34. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. Here's the king who disguises himself, sets up Jehoshaphat to be attacked because he's determined there is no way that I'm going to fall in this battle. And some archer is, oh, you know, some Aramean archer is over there. Man, he's just been firing arrows all kind of ways. And it says at random. He drew his bow at random. Well, that's from the man's standpoint of view, human's uh, point of view. But let me tell you what, this was as much a guided missile as the rock that hit Goliath between the eyes because it says it hit the king of Israel and hit him where? This guy's wearing armor. You know, apparently, you know, you, where, where the joints were, you had to have little openings there so that the, so that the pieces of armor could move. Where, here's a guy who draws his bow at random, fires the arrow, the thing goes up in the air, and when it comes down, it not only finds Ahab, it finds the place in his armor where it can pierce. And what happens to him? The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and give me, me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran into the floor of the chariot, And that evening, he died. And we can add, just as God had said would happen. The clear teaching of Scripture, and what we're going to see over the next few weeks as we look at individuals and situations throughout the Bible, we're going to see that the hand of God is active in all the areas of our life. And the ultimate purpose of God's providence is to glorify himself. And God will use whatever means he deems necessary and he wishes to do so in order to accomplish that. May we, I hope, over these next weeks together, get a clearer vision of who God is and what his great power and majesty is like and how he controls things and in doing so recognize that when the difficult times come into our life as well as when the good times come, That we as his people are in his kind hands and he does all things in order to conform us and make us and mold us into the image of his blessed son. Boy, that'd be a great thing if we could get a clearer picture of that. Father, thanks so much again for your kindness and mercy and grace and goodness. We are overwhelmed. Lord, Just just the idea of, of people throw dice, you're the one who causes the spots to come up. The kings make the decisions, but the truth is is that you're guiding them as they do so. Lord, there's still a lot of stuff we don't understand. We don't understand earthquakes and tornadoes. We don't understand Stalin and Hitler and Mao Zedong. We don't understand why people that we love so dearly have problems, and many of them to us die prematurely. And yet, Lord, we know that you have a plan and a purpose in all of this. And the only thing that we can do is is cling to you and hold on to you. Help us in these days to come as we look at this subject and pursue it from the scriptures, that, Lord, that we might grow in our confidence in you and in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray with great thanksgiving. Amen. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.